From the digital team at savannahnow.com, this is Difference Makers, a podcast featuring interviews with Savannah's community leaders about what they do, how they do it, and why. I'm Adam Van Brimmer, and joining me for the June 26th episode is Dr. Lawton Davis, Health Director for the Georgia Department of Public Health's Coastal Health District and the front man in addressing the coronavirus in the Savannah area. Difference Makers is presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. and businesses they lead. You might even know their faces. But do you know why they are Difference Makers? This is Difference Makers, a podcast presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority and dedicated to highlighting Savannah's key players and their contributions to our community. Difference Makers hail from several sectors, including commerce, government, education, arts and culture, and philanthropy. I'm Adam Van Bremer, editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News and savannahnow.com. Thank you for listening. Today's guest is Dr. Lott Davis, who has become one of the more recognizable local public figures in the months since the coronavirus pandemic began. Over the course of the next 45 minutes or so, he'll share fascinating insights on his background, public health infrastructure in our state and in our country, and the ongoing public health threat posed by COVID-19. This is information for life, as they say. Here's Dr. Davis. guest on Difference Makers today is a man whose name was probably not very familiar to many of us, uh, probably as recently as March the 15th, but now is is almost a household name. I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think you disagree with me, Dr. Davis, that people aren't as familiar with your name as Fauci or Burks or Toomey, but people around here, they've heard a lot from you the last couple of months as this uh, pandemic has gone on. And we're glad that you were willing to come on here today and let people get to know a little bit more about you and about what you do. And we're going to get into the pandemic and all that. But first, we usually start these interviews with a little bit of a bio and, and giving people the background on on who you are and, and what maybe influenced you in your formative years. So, I know from a conversation we had before we hit the record button that you're you're not a native Savannah, but you're a native Georgian. So can you kind of take us through where you were born, where you were raised, and and kind of what childhood was like? Sure, uh, and thank you for having me today. I was born in Forsyth, Georgia, and what little growing up I've managed to do in my life was done there. I've tried not to grow up too much. And, uh, you know, and during high school years, like a lot of people in small towns, I thought I was going to be the next world-class athlete, you know, and played football and basketball. And after college, uh, my first stint in the workforce was as a high school science teacher and a football, basketball, and baseball coach. Uh, I realized that that probably was not my calling, but until this day, I have great respect for all uh, educators and what they go through. Um, so I, after a year of that, I went back and completed some pre-medical school requirements, including extra chemistry courses, and then attended the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, where I met my wife. Um, she and I have now been married a little over 42 years, coming up on 43. We have three grown children. And following our residency programs, we moved to Dublin, Georgia in 1983, where we practiced medicine in some shape, form, or fashion until we moved here in July of 2016. Right. And we've been here ever since. 
I was actually in private practice for about uh, 15 years, and I joined the Georgia Department of Public Health January 2nd, 1998. And so I've been a district health director since that time. So I'm guessing medicine, you didn't come across by accident. Were your, were your parents involved in the medical field? And, and did you have medicine? Did you have an interest in medicine back when you were a boy? Actually, no, nobody in my family has ever been in medicine. As far as I know, um, I had a couple of experiences, you know, with a local family practitioner in Forsyth whom I liked and um, sort of developed an interest there. And I guess I just thought it'd be a pretty neat thing to do. Yeah, it was always in the back of your mind, obviously. What did your parents do? What was it like growing up in in Forsyth? Well, I had a wonderful childhood. My parents were both uh, very, you know, loving and dedicated parents. My father ran an Pontiac Buick automobile dealership in Forsyth for years. And my mother was a homemaker and then later went back to teach uh, English, you know, literature and, and grammar. Uh, once we were, once her little rugrats were uh, out from under her feet. Right. And my father was also the local Boy Scout master. And um, so scouting was a big part of my growing up as well. Did you make Eagle? That's what every scout has to be asked, right? I did. Thank you. <laughs> I have a son that's that's trending that way. And I know how big, how big of a deal it is. You also shared earlier that not only that you interest in scouting and with that comes uh, the outdoors and a lot of other things, but you're also, you're also an athlete. Can you kind of talk about your, your football exploits? <laughs> My football exploits were not that great. Our team didn't make it to the North Georgia championship. Uh, my senior year where we lost to the eventual state champions. I had one of my finest nights that night. I threw nine passes and completed seven, four to our team and three to their team. So you can <laughs> figure you out why we lost. <laughs> at least you have more to your team than the other. You'll get it that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was, that was not my best evening. And I actually played one year at Furman University, you know, as a freshman. Back then, freshmen couldn't play on the varsity, but I played on the freshman team. And uh, when I quit growing and I never was all that fast and I couldn't throw the ball very well, I figured that, you know, my my time as a significant athlete had come to an end. And you played for somebody who people that know high school football in the state will probably be pretty familiar with and, and Dan Pitts. Can you talk about what kind of influence he had on you and, and in your time as a, as a high school player? Yes. Coach Pitts was uh, actually lived two doors I lived two doors away from him, and he was kind of, you know, my outside of my parents. He was my hero growing up, and for a long time, I really thought I would be the next, you know, great high school football coach. That was sort of my my ambition. Uh, but I found out that teachers have to work really, really hard uh, because students don't like to pay attention, and um, you know, so. But uh, Coach Pitts was, at the time, the, the winningest coach, high school football coach in Georgia. And he was a great role model for a lot of us. He was a disciplinarian, but he treated everybody the same. And so um, he might chew you out one minute, but if he chewed you out, you knew you deserved it. And he was just as quick to chew out the people that were well off as the people who weren't well off. He didn't play favorites. Did that translate in your, in your brief coaching career and your one year of uh, of teaching and coaching? 
Well, just like I never became the next Fran Tarkington or Johnny Unitas, I never became the next Dan Pitts either. I think he had something, you know, the ability to deal with young people that, you know, probably I didn't quite have enough of. So that, that's an interesting transition, right, is, is you, go to, you go to undergrad and, and you come out to be a teacher and it doesn't go exactly the way you've, you imagined it. And then it, it shift gears into medicine. And you, you mentioned earlier that you knew some general practitioner when you were young and, and really admired what he did. But I wonder, as, as you started to trend toward medicine, was there any one thing that really kind of hooked you? I mean, was it just the idea that it wasn't? teaching and that you were still helping people? Yes. I uh, I mean, you know, I, I grew up in the day where the, the doctors made house calls. And if you, when I was a child, if I were sick, Dr. George would come drop in on me at home, you know, and talk to my parents. And he had one of these deep, melodious voices that, uh, you know, was sort of mesmerizing. And, and then another uh, fellow who turned out to be a neighbor, Dr. Pat Smith, was you know, similarly very nice. And so I thought that, um, you know, I could be a small town physician and do a lot of good in the world. And, you know, that sounds a little high and mighty, but it was pretty much what I was thinking. I was just interested in, you know, trying to have a career that would be interesting and and challenging, but also one where I could um, provide some benefit to other people. Right. Right. And did you meet your wife in, in medical school? Yes. Um, I hesitate to say we were in the same class because she's always been a lot classier than I have. But we were in the same classroom, and that's how we met. She actually attended Furman University also. Oh, wow. But she only went there for her last two years, and I was out of school two years before I went back to medical school. One year is while I was teaching, and another year as I was finishing up my pre-med requirements. So we, we did not, we knew some of the same people, you know, at Furman, but we didn't actually cross paths at Furman. And uh, sometime during the very first week of medical school, everybody who had attended Furman University got together, you know, we all met each other and that's how we uh, met. Okay. Uh, say Furman was a, is, a, is a small school, but it's not so small that you automatically know everybody else. So even if you had been there at the same time, there's possibility that that maybe you wouldn't have had that connection until you got to the medical college of georgia how'd you end up in dublin well um we received a phone call one day um from one of the people who was uh, practicing internal medicine there and asked us to come take a look and at the time uh this group needed another internist and there was a sole ENT practitioner in Dublin, and he needed a partner. And so we went and looked. And because of my roots, having grown up in a small town, I sort of preferred going to a relatively small place. My wife was from the city, so I told her I was moving to Dublin, which was three or four times bigger than Forsyth. So I was moving to the city for her, and she was moving to the country for me. So we kind of met in the middle there. What what city is she from? She's from Atlanta. And she was born in the Washington D.C. area, uh, but grew up primarily in Atlanta. Okay, yeah. So she does. She definitely was a city girl, and uh, I assume that you both uh, met in the middle and adjusted easily, or was it kind of a struggle? Oh no, it's it's it was a pretty easy transition. So Dublin actually had a very 
pretty incredible medical community. You know, when we moved there, I had partners from Johns Hopkins and Emory and, you know, a lot of big name medicine places. And um, it was a, a really nice medical community for for a small town. To be, I'd be hard pressed to find one that would be you know better than that. It was a great situation to go into. You know, as a new practitioner, they teach you how to take care of people in medical school, but they don't teach you how to run a practice. Right. And so you know, and um, it was really very beneficial for me to go in with a bunch of very intelligent people who. <laughs> knew what they were doing, not only from a medical standpoint, but also from a practice standpoint. So how do you then go from being in practice to being a health director? And, and oh, I mean, let's let's start there. What exactly does the health director for the Department of Public Health, a government agency, what do you do and how is it different than, than practicing medicine every day? In private practice, you know, obviously most of your day is spent either looking after people who are in the hospital Again, this my practice time was before the day of hospitalists. So if if you were in private practice, you had your office practice, but you also had your hospital practice, and you had to balance, you know, between the two. And I would get up and make rounds in the morning, go to the office, go back to the hospital in the middle of the day at lunch, come back to the office, and then go back to the hospital again in the afternoon and evening. And then you know, once as a district health director. Uh, you still have medical oversight of a lot of things, but you're not actively seeing clients. You're more into an administrative type role and a supervisory role. It's very different. And um, to answer your your earlier question, in my group, I was on call every fifth night um, and typically would be up literally all night long. Our practice was that busy, and we did most of the intensive care care work for the hospital. Right. You know, they didn't have intensivists then. We we were it. And so, you know, I'd literally be up all night long. My wife was on call every other night and subject to going into the emergency room for anything that involved trauma of the head and neck. And we had three children. <laughs> and so eventually we decided wow. something needed So it was a change. bit of a balancing act to say the least. <laughs> There were quite a few times when our children accompanied us to the hospital and one or the other of us or both of us were on call. And I actually left my practice at one point in time and began working in the emergency room in Dublin for about a year and a half just because I could have a regular schedule right. you know, and be home more often. And then a friend of mine who was the a pediatrician who was actually the chairman of the uh, Lawrence County Board of Health one day asked me, I was literally was leaving the ER after a, you know working all night. And I remember that early morning, he said, why don't you consider becoming our district health director for public health? And I literally looked at him and said, what is that? And um, I, mean, I, I just did not know. But one thing sort of led to another, and I checked into it, and um, Dr. Toomey was actually the director of what was then the Division of Public Health in the Department of Human Resources in Georgia. She is actually the person who hired me 21, 22 years ago, however long ago it was. You know, again, I, I did not know public health, but I sort of learned it on the fly. Now that you've done it a while, uh, are there parts of it that you, that you favor over 
being in the day-to-day practice and, and things that you miss about not being in the day-to-day practice? Well, yes, you know, there's a, you know, an expression that's fairly common in a lot of things. You use it or you lose it. Right. And if you don't use your medical skill and practice and continue to read and study and hone it, you know, you, you, you begin to lose your, uh, medical acumen, so to speak. And I miss that. And I miss some of the camaraderie that we used to have, you know, in the medical staff, um, you get to know each other and, you know, it's, it's can be a lot of fun. Uh, we didn't have any significant medical politics going on in, in Dublin. We were all kind of one big happy family for the most part. And, uh, so we got along real well. And, you know, while I still remember a lot of what I learned, there's just a whole lot more that has been learned since I left the active practice of medicine that I'm not as sharp on. Right. Uh, so I miss that, but uh, it, public health is, you know, instead of worrying about you, the individual, it's more worrying about the community and what's going on with the community. And one of the analogies I used to use is instead of coming into your house and looking and see what's going on with you, I get in my Goodyear blimp and I pull back up about a mile, not a mile, but about a quarter of a mile or half a mile up in the air and look down on the community and try to see what's going on there. Are we having an outbreak of TB? And if so, why, you know, are we having too many vehicular to pedestrian injuries? You know, is there a dangerous crosswalk somewhere that we need to fix? Are we having foodborne outbreaks? Uh, you know, what's going on? Is there something wrong with the water supply? You know, I mean, you can make up all kinds of scenarios, but you look at the, the community as a whole as your patient rather than looking at an individual person as your patient. We are speaking with Dr. Lawton Davis, Health Director for the Georgia Department of Public Health's Coastal Health District, on this episode of the Difference Makers Podcast. Before we continue our discussion, let's pause and recognize the Difference Makers presenting sponsor and a real difference maker in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether you're a business looking to relocate to the Savannah area or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is the centrifuge of a propeller, making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. Now back to Dr. Davis. So that's a really good segue into what I'm sure has been the probably the biggest challenge of, of your career and in most of our lives, and that's the the coronavirus pandemic. And let's let's kind of it's one thing that that you said repeatedly, and, and not just you, but it's it's really come up here in in recent days as we've started to see the the number of cases climb, and that's the whole idea that yeah, we may have thought that we were past the worst of this virus, and and a lot of the a lot of the more susceptible people. Uh, they got sick and ended up hospitalized, and, and a lot of them died. That, that maybe we're at least past the the peak of that. But this virus is still hanging around. And as you're up there in that Goodyear blimp, and you're looking down, and you're looking at the rest of June and July, and then into the fall, what is your analysis? What is what is your your message to to all the people in this community as it relates to protecting themselves and being vigilant about the virus? 
Well, I think early on, you know, we were saying things like this is probably not going to be a sprint. It's going to be a marathon. And all I can say is what's happening now is confirming that. Um, You're right. I don't I don't know if we're in a second wave or if we're just sort of still uh, seeing a a gradually approaching tidal wave. You know, it just seems to, to keep coming. Unfortunately, the summer heat and humidity do not seem to have done anything to slow slow down this virus. Um, you know, it's it's there not only well we're, we're finding more cases partially because we're doing more testing, which is a good thing, but also the percentage of tests that come back positive is increasing. Back at Late May, early June, we were a little somewhere around three, maybe a little under four percent positive, and now we're at about seven percent positive. So that's increasing, and you know I think there's several reasons for that. Uh, number one, people are tired of wearing face masks, particularly when it's hot outside, and they're tired of staying at home. They want to get on with their lives, and I understand that. Um, we're testing more because. Uh, businesses are encouraging their employees or requiring their employees to go have a test before they you know, come into work. Uh, facilities or entities that learn that they have an employee who's tested positive may be asking all of their employees to go be tested. We have, uh, like you're trying to get ready to go to Boy Scout camp and you know, you're supposed to have a test. Uh, Recreation leagues and sports teams are asking students to go have a test before you know they participate. Um, and then the other reason we're doing more testing is as more people are, more cases are detected, more people learn that they either are definitely a confirmed contact of you know, close contact of the case, or at least they are afraid that they may be. And so more people are coming in of their own volition to have a test done. Right. Um, so you know, a lot of reasons we're doing more tests. Yeah, and I, I think another part of the learning curve there is the whole idea that um, people see, okay, the, the number of confirmed cases is up, but we're not seeing any kind of, uh, you know, real increase or well, we're knocking on wood here, any kind of real increase in hospitalizations and deaths. So then they say, okay, well, are the people that are, that are stronger immune systems, are they getting it now? Uh, are we building that herd immunity that everybody talks about? Uh, you, you know, as well as I do, that something like this, that has kind of dominated our psyche for a couple of months, we tend to maybe connect dots that aren't always there. Is there some things that people should keep in mind as they look at this at, at this virus and, and try to assess the the danger and the threat to themselves and their families? Sure. Uh, several things, and I don't know that I'll get all of them. You mentioned several, you know, what you said prompted several thoughts, but um, one of those is that we, we know that people develop an immune response when they are infected, at least most people do, because most people fortunately get well mm-hmm. or never develop many symptoms to begin with. But we don't know that that immune response uh, conveys any long-lasting immunity. So, you know, there are antibodies that can be tested that say, yep, this looks like an antibody to COVID-19, but we don't know that that 
those antibodies are actually going to protect you against reinfection, or if they do in the short term, we don't know that it's going to be long-lasting and it's going to protect you six months from now. We know with SARS several years ago, uh, people did develop an immunity, but it only lasted about two to two and a half years, and then those antibodies seemed to disappear. So, you know, it is still not known for sure that the development of antibodies uh, from having been infected and recovering actually confers immunity. That Those studies have not yet been done. Uh, all of us who are watching this are aware of people who have been, you know, known cases. They got sick, had symptoms, tested positive, got better, symptoms cleared, tested negative, and then sometime later, you know, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, eight weeks later, got sick again, and lo and behold, they test positive again. And so is that a, you know, very delayed relapse of the same infection, or is that a brand new infection or, you know, reinfection? Uh, and I think a lot of this stuff is simply not yet known about this particular virus, which leads to the next unpleasant topic, uh, we know that we can develop vaccines that target certain proteins on this virus, and it appears that these vaccines may elicit an immune response in, in people, and certainly a couple of them have been shown to be protective, at least in the short term, in monkeys. But we don't know for sure that there's going to be a vaccine that is safe and which confers long-lasting immunity. You know, we all hope that there will be, um, and there are some that show promise, but until you've vaccinated, you know, a significant percentage of the population and, and you find out that none of those people uh, contract the virus again for a period of years, you don't know, or at least a period of months, you know? I mean, we just, again, we assume that it's gonna work, but we don't know that yet. Right. Um, a cautionary note is HIV. When people are infected with HIV, they develop all kinds of uh, antibodies and they can be measured. And that's the basis of our rapid screening tests. But you don't develop lasting immunity. And we're, what, 35 years into HIV and we don't have a vaccine yet. So while I I'm certainly hope that's not going to be the case with this, um, we just need to be realistic and understand that science can do a lot of things, but until we prove that it works, um, we don't know it for sure. Yeah, that's a big mental and emotional challenge with this, right? Is some people say that they're so terrified of it, they're like, well, I'm just going to hold up until there's a vaccine, even if that means next spring or two years down the road or, or, or whatever. And then others are like, well, you know, I, I can't, I can't live in a bubble. So, Let's go out and take our chances and hope that if we get it, we're strong enough to get through it. But, but like you said, we just don't know enough about this virus and, and we're a long ways from from really knowing a whole lot about it. And that just really makes it uh, taking a tough emotional and mental toll on, on everybody involved. It really, it really does. And, you know, people I encourage people to remember that even though they may be young and healthy and unlikely to have a, you know, adverse outcome if they're infected that and may not develop symptoms at all. But it, uh, even asymptomatic people can spread the virus to others. And, you know, that's why we're still encouraging people to practice 
good, you know, personal hygiene as well as good social hygiene and be considerate of those around you because the next person you come in contact with may be somebody who's, you know, over 65 and or who has some underlying risk factors. And, you know, none of us really want to be the person that spreads the virus to that person. No, absolutely not. You mentioned testing earlier. I know that testing is ongoing and, and we all can, we are entitled to free tests through the through the Department of Public Health. Can can you kind of give us a remind us where we can have that testing done and, and, uh, and in terms of pop-up sites and other things where we can go online to, to get more information? Sure. Um, we're, we're running two locations in the district, you know, have testing, at the moment, six days a week, and that's in you know somewhere in Chatham County and somewhere in Glen County, Brunswick. You know, there uh, public health has what we call a SPOC, a specimen point of collection. We have a testing site, you know, at two locations. And what we've done in Chatham County is uh, at least two days a week, we actually move that collection site to some other location other than Sally Mood. Uh, out in the uh, out somewhere in the county, trying to reach people who may not have the ability to come to the fixed location. You know, we're trying to make sure that all all segments of our community you know have access, relatively easy access to testing. Um, and the, the same thing is going on in, in the Brunswick area. In addition to that, we're going out to each of the other counties in our district once a week and setting up what we call a pop-up spot. And, uh, you know, we set up some portable equipment and let people do drive-through testing there. The the schedule changes sometimes uh, because if it's going to be bad weather, we're outside under tents, and if there's going to be a significant thunderstorm, uh, you know, we typically have to cancel. But if you go to our website, which is www.ga, like for Georgia, G-A-C-H-D, that would be Georgia Coastal Health District. So www.gachd.org. And right up at the very top of that page, is there's the COVID site, and you just click that, and it'll take you to a lot of questions and some, you know, statistics, and also um, it'll, it'll give an updated list of where locations uh, are that you can go and be tested. In addition to those sites I mentioned, we also uh, expert care in Richmond Hill, which is just across the you know the, the Chatham Bryan County line, um, takes people by appointments seven days a week. Uh, you, there's a hotline number on the website. You can call that number and they'll schedule you if if it's more convenient for you to go on a weekend or something and you just want to have a scheduled time to go, you can call and schedule an, you know, a, an appointment there and have the same test done free if it comes through us, you know, at, at that, at that location. Um, and we're looking to try to set up more, lo- more locations around the district where similar things can happen. One last question before we kind of get into the, the big picture thing. And that's about the whole idea that we're getting into storm season. And as you look at, the prospect of hurricane evacuations during a time of pandemic. What are your thoughts and your fears uh, on those on that situation? Well, we've put in a request to cancel all hurricanes this year, so we're just not going to have to worry about that. I sign off on it. Um, yeah, 
actually that is a you know a very sobering thought and a lot of work is going into that primarily you know hurricane evacuation in Chatham County is is handled by SEMA we work very closely with them we maintain what we call the hurricane registry which is a list of people who would not have the ability or to evacuate themselves and don't have family who you know can help them evacuate but and who require you know significant help either they have medical conditions that require the use of in-home medical devices uh, or they just simply you know can't drive and can't get themselves out of town so we have the hurricane registry and there's a uh, a link to that on our website as well. Uh, we always are updating that. We try to, you know, particularly this time of year, we try to keep that current. I think it's going to be a challenge, uh, particularly now that we seem to be seeing an, an increase in the number of positive cases. It's almost like you know you can't use social distancing and congregate shelter in the same sentence. It doesn't quite compute. Right. But, uh, you know, we'll have to do the best we can, and the, and the state, uh, the Department of Public Health, and GEMA are working on uh, de- developing the capacity for these people who are medically fragile and have to have assistance, you know, just to survive uh, a place to put them, you know, should we have to evacuate in the unfortunate event that we should have to evacuate uh, I can tell you the first, literally the first thing I do every morning after I grab a cup of coffee is I sit down and I look at the National Hurricane Center website yeah. to see if there's anything developing. Um, you know, we set a record this year by having three named storms earlier than we've ever done that before. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're all hoping that we don't have to do it. Uh, and people are scrambling to try to come up with transportation, you know, to get people who don't have other transportation out of town. There have been problems related to COVID-19 or caused by COVID-19. Some of the transportation companies that the state has relied on in the past basically had to close because there wasn't enough business and they couldn't pay their insurance premiums. And so simply finding coaches or buses, you know, to take people out is a very difficult task. And again, we we partner with SEMA, and uh, I know they're you know racking their brains on it as well. We're all worried about it. Yeah, some, something tells me that at one point, I think the state had said they were going to use the Georgia World Congress Center in case the hospitals got overran. I would think that those plans, uh, a humongous facility like that might be something that could be talked about shelter and, and congregate shelter. Um, I'm sure that there's some some minds at the state yeah, level on over that. Yeah, there's 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 some ideas um, and thoughts. I don't think that the governor and his team have finalized their plans, but I'm let's just read between the lines. I'm very I'm fairly certain that there is at least a plan B that could be pulled out of the hat if we had to do it tomorrow. Um, that it may not ultimately be the you know the the ultimate solution, but if if we had to go in a hurry, I'm pretty certain that there's a mechanism in place where we would uh, have somewhere to go. But they're always looking and trying to you know, improve the plan. And again, it just it, it becomes it becomes difficult when you, you don't you, know, you don't want to put 40 people on a bus 
yeah for two or three or four hours if you don't have to you know if, if that's the only option you've got then yeah you do it but if we can avoid exposing people you know on a bus that would be ideal Once again, you are listening to a conversation with Dr. Lawton Davis, Health Director for the Georgia Department of Public Health's Coastal Health District. We interrupt this interview to invite you to check out our latest digital initiative, Savannah's Town Square on Facebook. Obviously, you enjoyed this podcast, and many of you subscribe to our morning newsletter and watch or attend our monthly Brews and Views public forums. Savannah's Town Square is your chance to sound off. Every weekday, I post a talking point on Savannah's Town Square, a Facebook group page. Those who join the group are then free to engage with me and other members and discuss the topic. And unlike in comment sections and social media channels, we don't allow trolls and other mean-spirited posters to ruin what is meant to be a place for earnest, civil, and insightful dialogue. Go to Facebook today, search for Savannah's Town Square, and click the Join button. We'll get you in on the conversation. Now here's the rest of the Difference Makers interview with Dr. Davis. spend the, the balance of our conversation here talking a, a little bit about lessons learned and there's there's been a lot of them and and not just not just from a from a medical and, and a public health standpoint but us as, as individuals and and as people but when you look back at uh, how this thing it, it spun up very very quickly and and I, it didn't I won't say it caught public health people in the state flat-footed, but I think it was something that it was, it was, it was kind of like a deluge. And when you look back and uh, there was some talk about collection of information and dissemination of information and communicating that to the public and, and the state would say one thing and, and that might not necessarily be true in your, in your local area. And there was a lot of, I think that kind of added a little bit to the turmoil and to people's stress levels. As you look back, are there things like that, that, that maybe you're going to pull from going forward? And I hate to say it for the next pandemic, uh, but are there some things that you, that you're focused on and some lessons that you're taking away? Well, sure. Um, we, we can always learn even from unfortunate events uh, just as a society, I think one thing this should teach us, and I don't want this to sound too self-serving, but it's just for us, you know, globally, as a society as a whole, um, you know, public health in general or our public health infrastructure involves more than just public health, the agency. You know, it involves public safety and uh, a lot of other partners in the community that provide uh, safety net type frameworks. But public health specifically is one of those agencies that, you know, much of its work is sort of done in the background. And as long as there are no outbreaks and there are no public health emergencies, there's no pandemic, there's no out, you know, TB outbreak, there's no uh, foodborne outbreaks. When, you know, when it's out of sight and no problems for a year or two, it tends to be funded less well. The funding tends to, you know, to dry up because there are other critical things that are, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the, the grease, I guess. And uh, when nothing is squeaking in public health, it tends to be defunded to some extent. And so we need to maintain a viable, well-trained, you know, basic public health infrastructure. And that includes not only trained people, but also data systems. The data system that we have in public health was developed to track 
things that you know happen on a routine basis with maybe a little cluster of something here and a cluster of something there, but it was not designed to handle a pandemic on the nature of you know what we're seeing right now. And I think everybody recognizes that. So one of the things that as a state we certainly would like to see happen is that uh, you know, we get a much better state data system for public health. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but uh, you know, one of them certainly is the ability to respond to an emergency like what we're having now. So I think, you know, again, just a, a reminder that we, we need to maintain some reasonable basic level of, of up-to-date quality public health infrastructure. Um, the other thing, and I think this is one area where we actually have done a pretty good job since the, uh, when was the swine flu, 29, 2010, we've you know, maintained a pandemic flu plan, and we have actually practiced uh, that with our partners in various areas, meaning that you know public health and EMA particularly, and sometimes the school systems actually run drills. And it's nice to know you know who you're going to talk to if something does happen and you have to activate your plan. Um, I think the the anthrax scares you know sort of fueled into that as well, and we've run clinics on you know how to do mass dispensation of medications. In fact, every year we do drive-through flu vaccination clinics in our counties. Number one, it's a good way to get people to come get the flu shot. But number two, it lets us exercise our emergency capabilities by setting up this equipment and working with law enforcement and working with EMA in our communities. You know, again, so we can, you know, people change places, um, people retire, and it's nice to keep the local people in touch with each other so you'll you know who you're working with you know when you have to pull the trigger and say go and then it's the sort of the same thing as you know how much money do you spend to stockpile equipment that you may never need and that's a you know that's a question that is made at a pay grade well above mine by people who are hopefully a lot smarter than i am but we need to this should show us that we do need to have some basic level of personal protective equipment available and, and, and other things, you know, ventilators yeah. in case we do have a surge in demand for, you know, critical care. Right. And just basic coordination, right? We don't want to be in a position again where, where hospitals or states are bidding against other hospitals and states because equipment is so scarce. And uh, Absolutely. Something is going to be tackled in the wake of this, right? Absolutely. Um, I think a, a nice coordinated national response, which would you know feed in or, or collaborate with a coordinated state response, and I, and I actually think you know in many of the local levels in Georgia, you know, we have been doing this, mm-hmm. but you know an overall co- coordination. Certainly would make everything flow much, much more smoothly. Well, this has been this has been fascinating and overdue, and uh, I know that it's it's overdue because you've been incredibly busy and and really uh, speaking on behalf of everybody here, we really appreciate everything that you do and, and looking out for us, and uh, we'll look forward to talking again when, but maybe things aren't so dire. Well, thank you very much for you know, for having me, and if you have questions, please give me a call. Thank you.
That's a wrap on the June 26th episode of Difference Makers. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Lawton Davis, and to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as new Savannah Morning News editor Raina Cash, America's Second Harvest Mary Jane Crouch, and Savannah Mayor Van Johnson. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Our next episode will post July the 10th. On behalf of myself and producer Zach Dennis, thank you for listening. (laughs) 